Welcome to Reframing Our Stories. This podcast is dedicated to deconstructing the stories we've been told about who we are and how we're supposed to be. I'm your host, Kara Houck. Today we'll be speaking with Elle Dowd. I came to learn about Elle from a mutual friend of ours who introduced us via social media because we share the love of theology and sexuality. Elle is an activist, not only with fighting for the rights of the LGBTQIA community and smashing gender roles, but fights for racial justice. Elle is a parent to two girls from Sierra Leone and just graduated with her master's in divinity and is becoming a pastor for the ELCA Lutheran Church. She is a writer and organizer and is currently writing a book set to be published in the summer of 2021. I will say I have been quietly observing Elle and her work because she amazes me in the way that she gets to it. I take a while to enter in, but Elle is standing on the front lines and to me doesn't seem afraid to let her voice be heard. As I feel like I'm still in training on finding my roar, Elle has been roaring for quite some time. On Elle's website, she describes herself as this, by furious pastor in training who preaches, writes, and teaches about God's desire to liberate us from the things we use to oppress each other. Cis heterosexism, racism, ableism, queer phobia, colonialism, misogyny, childism, capitalism, and white supremacy. Elle, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. I'm so happy to talk to you because I feel like I've just been watching from the sidelines of kind of your life and when our friend Jamie was the one who kind of uh, put us in contact with each other, I was just kind of, I was just amazed at some of the things you were doing and the way to me that I feel like you seem really fearless and how you're just out there trying to uh, stand up for others, letting your voice be heard and helping deconstruct, right? A lot of the things that have been built around us to keep us down, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. So how did this, like, you know, I can tell that you just have this passion about you. So when was it for you that you noticed, you know, the injustices that are happening in our world and how did that change you? I think that for me, I'm continually like learning new things and noticing new things. Mm -hmm. Um, But from the time I was like a child, I kind of always had a very clear sense that like things were not okay. I think I have always been like really sensitive. So when you say I'm like fearless, I like want to laugh because I'm like, I'm very anxious and afraid (laughs) all the time. But I think uh, I I am, I've always been really sensitive. And Mm -hmm. so I always had this like very deep sense that like things were not right. And part of that, I think, was that I grew up uh, when I was younger in a blue collar home. And my suburb was like primarily more like middle class upper middle class and like that was not our family especially when I was really little Mm -hmm. and so I didn't have the language at the time to like notice that I was noticing these differences between me and my classmates but as I got older I realized that that was part of the reason that I always sort of felt a little bit on the outside Mm -hmm. and I think for people who were on the outside of my life looking in, it didn't necessarily look like I was on the outside. I had friends, I did well in school, but I always grew up kind of feeling different. 
And mm -hmm. I look back now and there's a few things that I think contribute to that. One of them is, is the class stuff. But I think also I wasn't out when I was younger. I didn't come out till I think I was about 19, mm -hmm. even though I had like a girlfriend when I was 13 years old and like, it wasn't a secret. So in some ways I was kind of out, but I wasn't like using a label for myself and I was in deep denial. Uh, I'm 30, I'm almost 32 now, probably by the time you hear this podcast, I'll be 32. So <laughs> like when I was growing up, especially in like a Midwestern white suburb, nobody yeah. came out until they graduated and it just never really felt like something that was for me. And then I also think some of my experiences growing up of abuse or uh, being a survivor of teen dating violence and sexual assault, some of those things sort of contributed to me having the sense of being on the outside. Mm -hmm. So in a way, knowing what it feels like to be on the outside or kept out and also contributed to like my empathy. So yeah. that is a lot of what made me start noticing. I started like participating in what I now realize are like little moments of community organizing, probably when mm -hmm. I was in um, like junior high, like organized some protests. I got in trouble in junior high for not standing to say the pledge to like protest the Iraq war and some other stuff like that. But um, before that, I was always like really into connecting people and bringing people together and hearing yeah. about what matters to people. I like started a Bible study when I was in fifth grade with like girls from my neighborhood. And I just really wanted I really wanted to get together like a crew of people to be in it together around shared values. And so that is like something that's always been something that I cared about. Yeah. I was going to say, you've been a community organizer then from very young, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've been a philosopher from that time. I remember in fifth grade, I raised my hand in class and I asked my teacher, I was like, how am I me? And how is PJ PJ? <laughs> and yeah. my teacher goes, uh, we don't answer those questions. <laughs> she goes, do your math. And I was like, okay. Yeah. I remember having like existential dread. This is probably like a similar, like people who went to like philosophy, theology, like mm -hmm. meaning making. I like remember having existential dread, like, yeah, about the age of, you know, like third or fourth grade. And just, I remember learning that, um, space like never ended and uh -huh. like that, just like blowing my mind and having a lot of sort of then existential questions very similar to like the stuff that you're saying right yeah now. we're just like what is this world no I think the adults in lives are like what stop what are you talking about <laughs> eat your you're, gushers <laughs> here's a tootsie pop right yeah um so then how has uh God been framed for you like who did God start out for you and as someone who's then like, did you learn pretty early on that you're just like, okay, I need to go to this path of theology and work with God or, you know, mm -hmm. how did that happen for you? Yeah, I always knew that I was called into ministry. I first started articulating a call to ministry when I was like seven years old and I was hearing about some of the things that were going on in current events. Um, I think at that time it was like unrest in the Gaza Strip and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just felt this overwhelming urge to be with the people who are hurting and so my idea of like being a part of ministry has grown and what that means and like, you know, what's my piece of that has grown and changed over time. But that's like another thing that's always been with me. Um, but as far as God, I really got a lot of different messages about God growing up than I subscribe to now. Right. I, grew up, I grew up in a church that was ELCA, but um, 
was actually pretty conservative and had like a hard evangelical bent. Mm -hmm. And after 2009, when the human sexuality statement came out and the ELCA voted to allow LGBTQI plus pastors and um, weddings and marriages, that church that I grew up in left the ELCA. Mm. And so I grew up hearing a lot about a God who is always referred to using he, him pronouns, Sure. a lot of male imagery around God, the father or Jesus. Um, I grew up hearing a lot about individualized morality and piety and sort of understanding right and wrong as something that was like about issues like sexuality, right? For example, mm-hmm. in purity culture, as opposed to this like community thing, systemic stuff that is how I understand God now. And I think a big thing was I was always really like hungry for conversations about God or um, about theology. Um, I went to a public school, so like wasn't really getting that there. And a lot of the church groups and school groups, again, were pretty like evangelical bent, like more conservative. But when I went to college, I majored in religious studies and I went to a state school and majored in religious studies and religious studies is like the academic discipline, not like glorified Bible study, basically. Right. I started learning more about, um, you know, my, my Bible professor was an atheist and the way that class would go is we'd read a section of the Bible and then we would learn how different groups throughout history interpreted that or um, have used that piece of scripture. So we might like read something from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible And then we'd hear how like traditional Jewish uh, faith leaders read this verse, how it was probably read at the time, how like Mm -hmm. progressive Jewish faith leaders read this verse, how- That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was so amazing because it was as if, you know, that thing inside that I was always naming, like something's not quite right. Like there's something else, there's something more. Mm -hmm. It was as if once I had language for like the theories and the theorists and the ideas, Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, I care about feminist biblical interpretation. Right. And it was like, when I had the words to be like, this is what this is what this is, it really made it so much easier to explore God and and my faith. And, and kind so of, and yeah, it's like ahead. I was just gonna say, and it's being presented of, oh, God's bigger than the God I've been presented my entire life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And um It was hard because the church I had grown up in when I was away at college, but I would come back for like summers and stuff. And some of the leaders would comment on, you know, things on my social media, like being like, I had not a Bible study about like the feminine imagery of God in the Bible. And like, I really, when I came back to my church, basically got like lectured about how I shouldn't do that. And so it was Mm. like, not only was I getting clear about how much was out there, I was getting clear about the narratives that were present in my upbringing and in my church growing up and um, sort of seeing how much those diverged and how like I, even like my questioning or um, my ideas were like not welcome there. And I, I actually eventually got pushed out of that church because I was really loud about not leaving the ELCA in 2009, but that church ended up leaving the ELCA. Mm. And so they um, very politely-ish asked me not to come back. So, Oh my gosh, seriously? Yeah. So the church has like hurt me a lot. Like I, 
grew up with a lot of places that were really important to my faith formation that were like anti-queer. And even though I um, wasn't out growing up, it, it always didn't feel good to me. And once I was out, especially like a lot of those memories became even more painful. So um, church has always been, or not always, but frequently church has been like a place of harm. But I know not everyone feels this way, but I was always like pretty able to separate God from the institution of the church. Like I always felt very clear that God was present with me in my suffering, that God cared about me, um, that God wasn't like punishing me or like wasn't, um, wasn't like as small or as like spiteful as like how I had been taught. And I have been lucky since then to experience faith communities that also believe that. And when I got kicked out of that church and joined another church in California after I got married, uh, I was very angry because I had just been very hurt mm-hmm. by the church, but they welcomed me in and saw my gifts and just like loved me, like loved all the rough edges off of me and uh, affirmed my call to ministry. And so there's been times that the church has reflected God's love for me. And, but there's been many times that there's been a major gap in that for me. Mm. That's so fascinating because I feel like I grew up in this or Midwest town as well, sorry, and very white. And my church for me became like my family where they just, I was the quiet girl. I went through, my parents were going through a divorce. I felt very much just like I didn't have a voice. And what was interesting is like some of the, I had a female pastor and she, uh, for me, was just someone who I thought was amazing. And her husband was our youth minister. And he was the person who kind of like pushed me to be like, start to find your voice and everything. But I also went along the script of also being a very good, kind, soft, quiet Christian girl, you know, as we're taught. Um, And for me, when I went within seminary and then beyond that in my 20s I was having a hard time with church and that's when I think church started where I started to experience pain within church because that's when I started to be much more outspoken and wanting to do stuff around sexuality Mm -hmm. where I started to recognize the huge importance of how it affects our daily lives And then I also was a dancer and wanted to bring movement and body language more into um, the liturgy and different things. And I felt at that point, people were like, well, we don't know what to do with you. So it's kind of like interesting where it was like you later on found these people who embraced that aspect, right? Mm -hmm. And like how different it can like show up still and depending, you know, on the environments, I think that we find ourselves. So with that, like, where do you think then that church needs to change? I think um, Pastor Lenny Duncan in his book, Dear Church, asserts that the major call for the church in the 21st century is to dismantle white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I very much agree with that analysis. I think particularly the way that white supremacy as well as other systems of oppression have really infected um, the church is something that's not only like harming our neighbors, but it's harming us and our own souls. And uh, one thing that I've noticed is that all throughout history, the church has had to make really tough decisions about whether or not to resist empire and systems Mm -hmm. of oppression 
yeah. or to collaborate and cooperate and prop up empire and systems of oppression. And all throughout history, the church has made different choices around that. Sometimes even during the same era, mixed choices in different pockets of the church. But I think in that way, this question that we're facing right now is not unlike questions that early Christians or Christians all throughout the church history have been facing. Basically like the empire and the devil and all his empty promises are whispering to us that as long as we play by a certain set of rules that are set up by white supremacy, the cis heteropatriarchy, capitalism and corporate greed, mm -hmm. as long as we buy into that, that we'll have some sort of level of protection um, or safety and the fact is that we know that's not true, that those things are like inherently destructive, not only to the neighbors that they harm, but also to our own souls, like I said. Mm -hmm. um, but we're in the same sort of moment that the church has been in frequently throughout history where we're having to decide, do we cozy up with empire or do we resist that and seek liberation and follow the God of love and liberation? Mm -hmm. So true. And it's so funny because I just see it. I think I too am awakening so much more to this as well. And where you just see how it has saturated so much of our lives and just in everything, everything that we do. And I have been deconstructing all the messages. I feel like I'm a late bloomer in this, which makes me feel a little annoyed, but um, just all the messages you receive growing up and just in the way, like within for women, even example of how we're supposed to remain quiet. We're yes. supposed to do these certain things. This is what our worth is compiled of. And like, I don't know, even the littlest things I was telling my husband, I was like, even the fact that, and this might sound ridiculous, but I was like, even the fact like men get to age and they're even distinguished. Mm -hmm. And I was like, when, when women age, you know, it's like we're getting less and less desirable and less and less seen and less and less heard when we have spent our entire essentially development trying to be seen and heard. Right. Yeah. And then you like, plaster that to all these other <laughs> demographics and different things. Right. And you're like, what in the world? And why are we like so blind? Mm -hmm. You know, what is, what continues to blind us? Yeah. I think the hardest part of like, well, there's many difficult parts about sort of having an awakening or the transformation that, that God leads us through is that like you first have to notice that things are wrong. And then that means that you kind of not to be dramatic, but like there's these moments where it's like, Oh, my whole life is a lie. And it's really destabilizing. And so yeah. even, even though like liberation is like exhilarating, it's also fairly terrifying because mm -hmm. if you, if you follow the script of these narratives around women and their worth or the value of LGBTQIA plus people or black lives or any other sort of narrative that's entrenched in our society, even if the narratives are harmful, it's like, well, at least there's a script. At least I know what to do. And as these things get busted wide open, it can be, uh, again, like amazing, but also there's a lot of questions about what's next. And I think that's a particular role for the church actually, because we believe and our ancestors believe that we know what's next actually. Our ancestors yeah. talked all about like what the coming kingdom of God would look like, what liberation would look like, and shared stories 
and songs of freedom all throughout history. And each Sunday we read these sacred scriptures, we read these sacred stories. And so we have them, like we have access to them. And as the world is sort of changing and evolving, one of the gifts the church has is to point to what's coming and say, this is what is coming. This is what is next. The kingdom of God is like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. And so I think that's like a particular place where the church is beginning to do some of that. Mm-hmm. And it's also a place where the church has been relatively fearful or lacking spiritual imagination. And like, we need mm. to expand and stretch that muscle a little. Well, how can we help those who continuously hold on to that sense of comfort? Mm-hmm. You know, like people essentially want to belong, right? And they want to feel like they have a place, but we also cr- are creating, right? Separate groups, essentially, um, within that, sometimes within society and within our churches, but for the greater good of looking at what the gospel really is preaching and, you know, the sense of liberation, how do we help each other break out of those areas of comfort to find that sense a liberation that can be jarring, you know, like how are we able to care for those uh, to help open eyes, but also not, I don't know how to, I quite want to say it. It's like, we need to care for them while also being like, well, here's what the reality is, you know? Yeah. How, how do you think that we can do those things? Yeah. There's like a certain sense of wanting to like validate, like, our experiences and emotions, mm-hmm. anytime that there's change, even positive change, there's loss and there's yeah. grief. Noticing and naming that like, even as things are changing for the better, and even if we can all name that it's going to be better, that it still is hard and there's still some things we're losing. A lot of the things we're losing are worth losing. Um, and a yeah. lot of the things that we're gaining are so worth the cost. But there, there, the reality is there might be things that are even good or wonderful that might have to die for something new to be reborn. Mm-hmm. And so I think staying really, I think the question in a lot of ways that you're asking is how to like, how to support people in that transformation so that they can do it so that we can all do it without sort of like enabling people and letting them, letting us all stay sort of like stuck somewhere. And I right. think, um, one, I obviously don't have this totally figured out, but my method has been to, when I'm that person who is experiencing loss and change, to listen to the stories of people who have gone through a transformation and what is there for me on the other side. And when I am the person who has experienced transformation and there's someone in my life who is fearing that change or grieving the losses that come with change, to share with them, my experiences of why this is all worth it and what is waiting for us on the other side. I know that like, for example, I also grew up in a predominantly white suburb and I spent my whole life as a white person having my identity centered. And so when I was in St. Louis during the Ferguson uprising and I was out on the streets with the people, um, I was very rightly not centered in that moment. And it was very disorienting. I had always been told like, you know, you're a leader or I frequently had always been like in charge of making plans. And suddenly I was like a follower or like a participant and not like the boss of everything. And it was very destabilizing to figure out it was almost like a new identity or role. And yet 
that decentering is what opened me up to so many relationships, to so much personal growth, to a better understanding of God and the gospel. And so that's part of why I try to like talk about that experience is that there are moments that are really hard and it's worth it. Yeah. That's true. It's like we have to constantly remind ourselves, right, to enter in, to go through the hard, <laughs> to get to get to the other side. I think it's like we just hate being uncomfortable, and I think we yeah. have to learn that being uncomfortable, there's a reason sometimes for that, and that's okay, yeah. to then find the people to support you in that process of being uncomfortable and caring for you when you may not be able to care for yourself at that point, you know, because I think sometimes that's like what it is, like when we go through these moments of awakening, we're like, oh shit, like <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is hard. I feel like maybe the church just needs to hire a bunch of um, death doulas, you know, have you heard yeah. of people yeah, who do that? Because it is like, I think grief is in so much of what also we try to pull away from, again, because it's uncomfortable and because it's not linear and it's hard to process but grief plays such a dominant role in our lives, you know, like you said, because with change, mm -hmm. um, with any change comes grief. And so learning how to like minister that, like how you have learned to do and are doing with friends and family, I think is really important. Yeah. I think too, um, the church has some like particular gifts in this area as far as like the way that our embodied liturgies can support us in these transformations. We have all kinds of language, particularly through baptism about, um, you know, death and resurrection or yeah. being reborn, or it's like all these different languages and images around new starts and our liturgies and particularly sort of like the physical aspect of these liturgies really support us in these transformations if we allow them to and sort of like pay attention to what's going on. It's like we forget about that sometimes, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. we get so I feel like we get so wrapped up in, um, you know, politics and policy that we forget, you know, like you said, the language that is set already before us, the yeah. way God has been talking to us for centuries. Like we those are the things we're just like, oh, what? Oh, I mean, it's right there in front of yeah, our face. And that's why, like, um, I mean, at least in theory, that's why, like, the church gathers in community is because the pull of these other narratives, um, the pull of these systems is so hard mm. that we need to be reminded over and over. Like, we need to hear the story again. We need to sing the songs. We need to experience the liturgy in our bodies and be amongst each other. And so that's like one of the reasons that we gather. That's like why we don't just like, you know, tell the Easter story one time and then we're like, cool, got yeah, it. That was neat. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be told, we have to be reminded. And so that is like one of the purposes that community does is when I forget that there's people around that can remind me. And when the person next to me forgets that like, I can remind them. And when it's hard to believe or it's hard to have hope, like we can believe and have hope on each other's behalf until we're all ready again. Yeah, that's true. That's great. I appreciate that you're saying uh, to experience it in our bodies, right? Because I feel mm -hmm. like that's, I think a lot of the, you know, Lutheran tradition is so cerebral. 
And so I think that's also too, and that's kind of something that I've always pushed for because for me, I've always experienced God so much more in my body. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where God has made sense. And to be able to feel those things is what's helped transform me. And I feel like that is what we need to help to bring to others in the pews, right? Yes. And we have, it's like in the tradition, we have the tools. It's amazing that it's particularly white Christianity, white Western Christianity, Mm -hmm. um, and that brand of Lutheranism that is so like head knowledge, not heart and gut knowledge type of um, vibe. Mm -hmm. And our tradition is, is not about that. Like we gather around this idea of this, of God who became like a human being with flesh and blood, who like had real feet on dusty roads, who breastfed at his mother's breast. And when he died, you know, like blood, real blood. And so we're (laughs) gathered around this person who like was so scandalously fleshy. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) And then in our, in our liturgies and stuff, we're talking, we're doing these multi-sensory things, right? With in baptism, you're like hearing the trickle of the water. You feel like the splash, you know, you hear the splash. There's all the, all these like sensory things that happen. And with communion, there's like the smell, taste, touch, all that stuff too. And so there's stuff built into our own tradition that can support us in our embodiment and experiencing God that way. And that is, if we are intentional about that, it can be really supportive also in people's healing. Um, because as you know, the mind body connection is really important for healing and for people yeah. who've experienced, um, any kind of trauma, but especially spiritual trauma for people who are like ready to be back at church, reconnecting this mind and body connection that is so often violently separated by harmful theology, mm-hmm. um, is like <laughs> really, really important to wholeness. Mm-hmm. I've told people before that I actually think communion is extraordinarily erotic. Yes. You know, I was like, if you think about it, we are taking in the flesh and blood of Jesus, you know, into our body. We are embodying it. We are tasting, feeling. And I was like, where else do we take in? You know, I was like, it's to me, very similar. Some people have a hard time with that, but. Yeah, that's another thing that actually all throughout, all throughout our tradition, um, we have people who have connected the spiritual and sexual, and that's a part of our tradition that we often don't talk about. And so when people like you or I speak about God in this way, it seems very like new or scandalous. But the fact yeah. is, like, there's always been, usually, many times we call these people mystics, but there's mm-hmm. always been <laughs> people in our tradition who have, who have described God in this way or said, like, this is the closest way that I can um, that I can like experience God is through almost like ecstatic sexual union. That's like the best way I can like explain my love of God and the way that God affects me. And so there's all these people like literally in our history, I always am like, I didn't make this up. Like this isn't right. like, <laughs> you're like, it's been around guys. <laughs> I'm just sharing it again. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's in our scripture too, right? There's these moments yeah. in scripture too. So um, yeah, there's, if people are interested in reading more of that stuff, there's like all this, like really, um, very scandalous, erotic God talk, particularly in the middle ages from some of the, in, in Europe, from some of the mystics that are really fun to dive into, but it's some of Mm. the moments are like romance novels almost. You're going to have to share those with me later. (laughs) That'd be great. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to the Reframing Our Stories podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and consider becoming part of the community by becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com backslash reframing our stories. There you can see the options that fit and speak to you personally. We hope that these stories are helping you reframe the stories. As we are helping to try to change this, as the, you know, and I believe the churches um, on those, you know, some of the churches are, I think, in different communities. And as you are helping with that, of helping bring to light those who are oppressed and changing the way that we are fighting against white supremacy, uh, what do you want people to know? If those who feel intimidated on being the front lines or who feel like their voice isn't strong and to feel too uncomfortable but want to get involved and want to help change things besides it just being like a personal kind of experience. What would you want people to know and how could they help? Yeah, I think movements, uh, particularly the movement for Black Lives, have taught me more about the body of Christ than any church ever has. And when we talk, when Paul talks about body of Christ in Corinthians, it's all this talk about, you know, one body, but many parts and that each body part plays a different role and that none of them are more important than the other. And so I think there is something inherently transformational about being on the front lines. I think even those of us who think we can't do it, um, there are real reasons not to be able to do it. Don't get me wrong. Like people who are undocumented, people who like can't be arrested, people um, who have particular disabilities or for other reasons, there's many reasons it's like not safe to be on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And I think if you, if you can do it, but it just feels a little risky that actually like the risk is incredibly transformational in and of itself. But even outside of that kind of, you know, megaphone in hand or, or whatever riot line kind of work that even though that's a lot of what we hear about organizing and movement work is so much bigger than that. And it always has been, I think about the black Panther party and how, you know, they were radical as hell. And they also did these like free breakfast programs, reading programs, um, mm-hmm. providing medical care to people. And they called this program um, survival pending revolution is how they talked about it. And it was this idea of like, in order for people to be, to enjoy the liberation that we're fighting for, in order for people to be able to fight, they have to have full bellies and um, healthy bodies and, you know, learned minds, basically, educated, mm-hmm. educated brains. And so I think about in Ferguson, um, how the way that people showed up was, yes, a lot of people just like spilled out their front door and just kind of like were bodies in the streets. And that was super important. But each one of those people also has their own skills and passions and mm-hmm. areas of expertise. And so we saw people who were lawyers setting up um, free legal clinics. We saw people who were communicators create newsletters or live stream. We saw people who were um, healthcare workers who partnered with street medics to like treat people with tear gas. Um, And one of my favorites is, I always tell the story because I just think it's so special and um, honestly sacramental. There's a a woman that went by Mama Cat. Her name's Kathy, but she went (laughs) by Mama Cat. And she went to culinary school. Mm -hmm. And so because like protesters would basically just occupy in front of the Ferguson police department 
24 seven for the first several months. Like if you went at any time, there was like a few people holding vigil, right? There's also these like big mass actions, but I think what was like, it's what's really powerful to me is that people were just like there, people would just show up and be like, we're, we're not going to let you forget what you did to Leslie's son and we're watching. Mm -hmm. And so because people were there all the time, you know, people also needed to eat. And so part of what mama cat did was cook food for us. And she wasn't the only one, you know, there was like, it got very cold in the winter and there were like little grannies who dropped off like knitted hats for protesters. Um, oh, that's so sweet. People who brought coffee or hot chocolate. And so um, for people who are like, I am more of a behind the scenes person. Yeah. That's actually what makes movements run is behind the scenes people. Um, there's always help needed in like jail support, like tracking down people who have been arrested, making sure that they have medications that they need, make sure their loved ones know where they are, waiting for them to get out and like waiting there with every time that I've been arrested, when I come out and there's people waiting for me, I feel so supported. And I feel so relieved when they have a phone charger and a snack and a bottle of water, because, um, you know, when you're arrested, you might get like a bologna sandwich or something, but that's about it. So, mm. um, for people who are like, I'm, I'm more of a, like a caregiver, right? I'm like less maybe confrontational. There's ways to be subversive and to show up that are not, that are confronting systems still because systems would rather starve us out and have right. us live in diversity narratives and like bringing that abundance to the movement is also very important. That's great. I feel like so many, I feel like that, you know, those who are maybe not as active within protest and different things only see certain images right mm -hmm. and we forget about all the things that happen but like you said behind the scenes so I think it's wonderful to highlight that for everyone to know like you can have a voice in all of this like yep. and be a, a change maker and help um, in so many different ways so that's awesome we always joke about like as activists and community organizers we always joke about um sometimes like people think all we do is like stand in the street and yell and right. like that happens sometimes but for that one day of like standing in the street and yelling frequently there's like a million conversations and yeah, different things happening like it's all like it's so many meetings because yeah. um organizing as well as ministry is all about relationships as the building block for change and so it's like one-on-one -on -one meetings, like small group meetings, planning meetings, follow-up meetings. It's just like so many meetings because it's building power and uh, supporting transformation means that we have to know each other deeply. And so it's just like mm -hmm. so many meetings. It's much yeah. less like sexy or glamorous. Right. Than, you know, <laughs> well, it's like people see the shouting, but they don't realize the amount of listening that happens. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing that's really crucial. Yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, usually in organizing a direct action is an escalation, which is means that all the other tactics have been ignored. So it's mm -hmm. um, in the case where there's like something that's just like so horrible, like the deaths, um, the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Michael Brown, there are people that it's just like first time activists who just organically fueled by rage pour out into the street. And like, to me, that's like the Holy Spirit and it's righteous and it's important. Um, but in more, in other organizing, um, modalities, usually it's like when it's like a less organic, more planned thing, usually like those protests are the results of a ton of unanswered emails from representatives being mm -hmm. refused meetings, you know, like it's like direct action is frequently 
the end of a long line of steps of trying to get some change or progress or conversations going. And that escalation is in large part to force the conversation when people try to run away from it. So there's frequently all this stuff that happens before. Yeah. Very true. So I'm wondering how becoming a mother Mm -hmm. has um, affected you in this journey. And can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So um, like I said, I was a religious studies major in college. And one thing that we could do was called a peace and justice internship where you partnered with a non-government organization or community organization and you basically did some like reflecting and um, you get credit for it. It was like one or two credits you could take in the summer. And so through some various connections, I ended up in uh, an orphanage in Sierra Leone for the summer in 2009. And that's when I met both of my children. Um, Adam and I had just gotten engaged. We also like only dated for three months and then got engaged. So that was wild. But um, wow. <laughs> yeah. you know, I always tell when you people, know, you know, right? <laughs> I always, I mean, I think it's more like, uh, we, I lucked out because honestly, I tell people like, that's not like a best practice usually. It's just longer. But we were really intentional when we were dating about like really wanting to get to know each other. And so I do think there's some quality over quantity stuff, but yeah, in general, not a best practice. So I just gotten engaged. I went to Sierra Leone for the summer and, and I met the girls and, um, meeting them and being in Sierra Leone was another moment of my life that was like incredibly formational and transformational. Mm-hmm. I definitely, even though I had begun to learn about white saviorism and some of the other ways that white supremacy plays out in nonprofits, yeah. I had definitely still internalized some of that and came in with some like white savior bullshit baggage basically. Sure. Um, but loving them and meeting them and loving them sort of motivated me to continue to get more involved. And I, the next four years, I split my time between living with my spouse in California and then living in Sierra Leone um, with the girls. And, and um, I think... Can I ask how old you were? Yes, I am 31. I'll be 32 very soon. So I was 20 when I met the girls. Oh and they were two. I think to me, for in all honesty, when I like learned, you know, you're a mom and then how old you are now. And I was like, man, that is not what typical 20 year olds, (laughs) you know, young 20 year old women are doing. Like, so I feel like that's pretty. um, I mean, I could be an empty nester before I'm 40. (laughs) I mean, so I feel like that's pretty incredible. And so like what, I mean, like for me, it's like, what? about that, I mean, that made you be like, I need to be their mom. Like I need to take them in, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, adoption is another one of those things that has a lot of complicated narratives. And frequently mm-hmm. we hear the stories of adoptive parents like myself, and we don't um, center the stories of people who are adopted or first parents and biological parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm pretty, I'm also pretty careful, like with the girls story, especially as they get older and like letting them sure. share the parts that, that matter to them. Um, but I'm always, I'm always very wary of adoptive parents who are like, God brought us together. Cause it's like, right. yeah, 
Um, <laughs> I don't think that like God wanted my children to go through the things that they went to through for them to like be in an orphanage, you know? Right. And when, yes. So <laughs> I think it's hard because on the one hand, it was like I had this feeling um, when I met them that it was like the last puzzle piece had clicked into place and it was like, oh yes. Um, and at the same time, I'm really cautious about saying things like, you know, God brought us together or something because what God wants is for them to have never gone through the things that they, that they went through. And that means sure. probably they would never have met me. So I think, um, I'm like, obviously like overjoyed to like be their mom. And I'm also like really sad that like, they had to have that experience. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think in my sort of like journey of transformation that we're all continually on, I know for most people who become parents, becoming parents is incredibly transformational. And I think um, being an adoptive parent, parenting kids who have been through a lot, parenting across race are all added layers of complication, sometimes also gift, but like it, it, you know, layers of complication. And um, I would say the major thing that happened to me when I became a parent of these children is that instead of anti-racism, being this thing that was like, I should morally do, right? Like mm-hmm. racism, bad, white supremacy, bad. If you want to be a good person, you should try to end it, right? And it was mm-hmm. all very sort of like cerebral. Again, to get into the embodied language, when I became a parent of black children, it stopped being cerebral and it started being every cell of my body crying out in like fear and rage and wanting to protect them because sure. these are like my babies that I love. And that's this is something that, obviously black mothers and other mothers who are people of color and parents who are people of color have experienced, you know, for hundreds of years. And so, um, that visceral change is really, was really different. And so, although I really like, I get really frustrated when people are like, Oh, the way to, you know, fix racism is like to build relationships across race. I'm like, this is a systemic thing that is bigger than that. But I think there's something about the level of buy-in when it's someone that you know and love. Mm-hmm. And so, um, a lot of times people ask me sort of like, what keeps you going? Do you have a lot going on? Or like, wow, a lot of that stuff was like really intense. Like what keeps you going out there in the streets or, you know, doing this work. And my answer is that like, I have to tuck my black children in at night and I have to face the reality that this is the world that they're waking up in and the world that I'm leaving for them. Like mm-hmm. I have to like look them in the eyes and be able to like deal with myself and one of the only ways that, that I can do that is to know that even as I fail, even as I, there's missteps, that every step of the way, I am trying, I'm trying to do everything I can to make things better. And I think that that feeling is a universal like, feeling around uh, for mothers and, and many parents. Like, mm-hmm. But it's like, I will use like, everything at my disposal to make things better for my children. Um, mm-hmm. At least in theory, right? And in, in what we hope that like parents show up, there's plenty of parents that for whatever reason don't show up in their in their children's lives that way, either because of like their own brokenness mm-hmm. or yeah, whatever, you know, but yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's amazing. I just love, I mean, I think it's just also a wonderful testament to them, right? To see mm-hmm. the way that you are showing up. And so often like being a parent, I say is the hardest job there is. You, we never know what kind of parent we're going to be. And then we never know what kind of old wounds are going to be rehashed when we become parents. Right. And so 
I too, like I look at my kids and I'm like, well, I have to do the, you know, try my damnedest <laughs> to yeah. do what I can to know that like, I can look you in the face and say, well, this is what I did to try to help. Yeah. If yeah. It's effective. Like this is what I tried. So. And so many things are like, we actually don't know that we make the right call until like later they can reflect back and tell us like if it was the right call or not. I know that yeah. my parents like really tried very hard for me and there's plenty of things that I'm like raising me in purity culture was not the right call. Right. But they, yeah. that was like what they had in front of them at the time. And mm -hmm. so it was like, um, to, it's so important like to me to be like, I actually like, don't know. <laughs> I actually don't know if I'm doing the right thing most of the time. Like the only people who actually have the authority to tell me if I'm doing the right thing or if I'm are your daughters. well are the, are the kids, you know, mm -hmm. are the children. So, and honestly, probably they might need some space from the situation to be able to look back and even know how they feel about things. So, um, you know, when they're 30, maybe you can have them on the podcast. And they tell you <laughs> well, I think, well, hopefully the podcast still goes on then, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, girl, I'll be re retired. I'll be like, oh. <laughs> what kind of story do you believe that you are continuously reframing for yourself? Yeah, I think this happens on like multiple levels, you know? So there's right. sort of like the big system narratives that we've talked a lot about the, the things that we internalize and then reframe. And I think I do a lot of that basically as a job, you know, um, mm -hmm. as a person who is, uh, going to be a pastor in the ELCA, we say that like pastors are the stewards of word and sacrament. So the, the word being not only scripture, but including scripture mm -hmm. and reading these ancient stories and understanding them in new ways and framing them and reframing them, um, and talking back to them and seeing like how they relate to what's going on in our lives today is like a lot of my job, like as, as a faith leader. Um, but then there's also narratives, you know, more on the micro level about things that I believe about myself or about God um, or about the universe and God's creation. And so I think um, one story that I frequently have to reframe is this idea that I'm alone and I think this comes from that same sort of like experiences I spoke to earlier of feeling on the outside and yeah. particularly as a survivor of, of abuse, I frequently get this narrative, like you're alone, nobody cares about you, like you're disposable, this is it, right? So like, that's something that, you know, I've had enough therapy to be like, that's a script playing in my head that's a result of trauma and it's not true, but sure. I still have to like work to reframe that constantly. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of people. Um, and even like in many different ways, this idea of like, you're all alone. Like mm. we have this feeling of isolation and loneliness. And then there's also like the flip side of that where people, where we've internalized this lie of capitalism and, and whiteness of like individualism. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I'm all alone. I can do it on my own. I can make it on my own and not un understanding and seeing our interconnectedness. And that's one of the ways that the meta narrative plays out. Yeah. And so I think. Which is um, all like counterintuitive, right? It's just right. like. <laughs> right. Of course we need each other. Like if you just look around, you're like, somebody built this apartment I live in. Like somebody is like <sighs> working at the water treatment plant for like the water I drink. Like, of course we need each other, but there's mm -hmm. these, there's these lies that we tell ourselves. And so, um, that's one of those stories, again, like if relationships are the building blocks for, tra for transformation, for change, 
relationships are like the basis of ministry of activism, community organizing, all these things, then recognizing my relationships um, is really important. Like knowing I'm not alone, which means both like there are people who love and care about me and will support me and I can't do it on my own. Like I'm not, I don't need to be like a superhero or like I can't be. Um, Both of those narratives show up in many areas of my life. Yeah. And I, I feel like at the same token too, even like right now with what we're living through, like there is this huge sense of loneliness that people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Right. But we still can figure out ways to be connected. And I feel like, like you talked about too, about in our today's culture of, you can tell me whether or not you believe this or not, but I feel like social media in a way has um, made it where it's like our children today are like, I want to be a YouTube star. (laughs) I want to have this sense of fame. I want to be the one, you know, we have that whole, like, I want to be the one, I want to be the famous. I want to be like this, Um, which is also taking away that sense of community, you know, and helping us know that in order for us to really become, I think the best persons we can be is to, you know, almost looking into the faces of other people, right? Of like seeing their gifts and being like, oh, right. Like how you're a natural connector and like bringing people within our own circles to lift each other up for sure. Yeah. I think that was even true. Obviously like the mediums have changed, but even for Mm -hmm. me growing up, it was like people wanted to be, you know, I don't know, a pop star or people when social media became more of a thing. I think it's like, part of me wonders if it's this desperate need for all of us, um, within all of us to feel known and seen yes. yep. earlier that it's like, yep. um, women, but all like all kinds of people who experience oppression. And I also think honestly, all humans, although in different ways and to different degrees, all of us frequently feel like we are not being recognized and mm-hmm. that we aren't being listened to. And so, um, I think part of that poll towards like, I don't know, quote unquote fame or whatever, like having a platform, um, is a part of that to be like, do you, do you notice me yet? Like, yeah. And recognizing like people's worth and like individual gifts. And yeah, I think, um, right now when you spoke to like the isolation and loneliness that people are feeling, it's this weird thing that's happening, which I think happened before but it's so stark during the pandemic of like um especially for for people who live alone this is different like it's a different kind of loneliness but Mm -hmm. I feel the loneliness because I miss some of like my day-to-day interactions even like you know passing strangers like at the coffee shop or whatever I definitely miss a lot of my friends um and at the same time so I'm kind of lonely and then at the same time I'm like can't get a fucking minute to myself because (laughs) like 500 zoom calls in a row and then like I live in a small apartment with like four adult uh, people in this two-bedroom apartment and so like yes they're both sort of like simultaneously overstimulated it's and, so like, true I, <laughs> I feel you yeah I think that was true before right like that's kind of like um, the the gift and curse of a lot of the like I'm obviously a fan in general of social media I think it's like important to be where people are and it's yeah. a way to connect and communicate and then of course, like any relationship, there's like the, the underside of it. Right. So I think, yeah. um, this is one of those things that's true of social media is that we can 
feel both bombarded and never like have any peace because there's 9 million notifications going off mm-hmm. and still feel really lonely. And I think, um, that is not like something that's different than our lives in our physical space. It's actually like very similar, um, to our lives in our physical space and particularly during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. <laughs> Let me just say that. Everything you just said, agree. <laughs> I'm right there with you. So yeah. I wanted to highlight the fact that you are writing a book, which is very exciting. And I'm very, yeah. Um, yeah, what a wonderful thing to be doing. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and how has the writing process been and all that? Because that's exciting. Yes. So, um, I have always loved writing and like I was the chief editor of the literary magazine growing up in junior high and high school. And, um, that was like always a major part of my identity and the way that I processed things and understood the world was through writing. Mm. Um, and so I think that comes out a little bit in social media. And so I had a few editors, you know, over time reach out to me and be like, do you want to write a book? And one of them was Lisa from, um, from Broadleaf publishers, broadly books. And she was like, kind of like, maybe half jokingly, I don't know, was always like, let me know when you want to write that book. And I was like, lol, okay. Um, and like, there's just so much going on, right? There's like, I was in seminary. Um, Jessica actually didn't come to the United States until 2017. So like, we were like oh, wow. adding a new child to our family. I was like organizing, I was working, like, you know, there's just so many things. And so, um, I was always like, this isn't the time. And I then got on internship at St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Logan Square, which um, in the ELCA process for people don't know is basically like a year where you're like a pastor with training wheels. Like you do all the things pastors do full time, but there's like another pastor there supervising you and like assisting in your development. Um, And so I was preaching a lot. I was preaching like, you know, half of the Sundays and some major festivals. And I kept noticing these themes coming up in my preaching And so I was on the way to a community organizing, continuing education thing. Um, And on the plane, I just like sent Lisa, the editor, an email, basically like copy and pasted a couple paragraphs from like various sermons and was like, I thought maybe this could be a book. I don't know. (laughs) And then like kind of like thinking there would be like this whole hard process. But actually Lisa was like, I'm super excited about this idea and helped me like get like my thoughts a little bit organized. And so um, this spring, like right before, right, like kind of in the midst of quarantine, um, we, I signed the contract and the themes that had been coming out and preaching a lot were I was telling and retelling these stories about, um, the Ferguson uprising. Mm. And I, so the book in general is a lot about the things that we've been talking about today. Like it's a, Mm. it's about my own personal transformation from someone who was a white moderate who grew up in like white suburbia into um, a police and prison abolitionist. And so it's about like the ways that God transformed me, the relationships I had transformed me, the experiences that I had transformed me and the things that I learned. And so I sort of say it's part like love letter to like my fellow activists. It's part uh, maybe kind of memoir-y. It's part like theological reflection. and, And it's also in many ways like, directed towards other white people who are wanting to get involved in liberation movements and sort of um, helping them learn the lessons that I learned without making the mistakes that I made, hopefully. Mm. And so um, 
at this point, actually, I have written the entire first draft of the manuscript. So oh I have- Oh my gosh. Yeah. You did that quickly, I feel. Yeah, I think cool. part of, it was weird because I sort of pictured writing this like at coffee shops and like very much more right. romanticized. And now, I'm, <laughs> you know, in my house, like again, in my <laughs> apartment and like there's no privacy, like the kids they didn't go to school, you know, it's just like a lot. But um, so I wrote, it's 10 chapters and about eight of those chapters have already gone through some like pretty heavy revisions. Wow. And so there's some other, there's like a lot of steps left, right? Like um, the editor has done some pretty heavy revisions and, and we've worked really hard on those eight, but she's going to sit down, Lisa's going to sit down and read the whole manuscript in like one sitting and look for like bigger themes and arcs mm. um, that we can tweak and, or make more prominent or more clear. Um, I have, um, because Lisa and I are both white women, uh, Jess Davis, who does sensitivity editing and is a black woman is going to read it. Um, Tracy Blackman, who is a pastor that I met in Ferguson, who's a black woman, who's a UCC uh, pastor is going to write the foreword. So there's like all these pieces that are coming together, but um, the book will be released next summer. And it's the same publisher as like Lenny Duncan, his new book's also coming out like that spring, uh, mm. United States of Grace. And so, and that's a memoir and it's going to be really good. So huh. the timeline is basically, um, summer 2021 and each of the chapters is like around kind of a different theme like a lot of stories about Ferguson connecting it to the sacraments connecting it to scripture connecting it to my own story and transformation and then at the end of each chapter there are discussion questions and an action item so that we can do oh, both the internal reflecting and the external action that like it really takes for for movements to happen Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. It's uh, right now we're workshopping ideas for the title. And so that's like another step and cover arts, another step. And I'm mostly just still surprised that I'm writing a book slash I wrote a book. Like I, again, it was like, I kind of like sent an offhand email with a something sloppy copy and paste job. And then all of a sudden I, this book is happening. But, um, my, my initial feeling was like excitement. And then I was like, oh shit, now I have to write a book. <laughs> And then it was it's like, right. yeah. and like the subject matter is like so important and it was yeah. such a big thing that I, you know, I could never do it justice. And so the pressure of not wanting to mess it up and, and to mm -hmm. do it, do well. Um, and especially also like, you know, the conversation about me as a white person writing a book about Ferguson, it's about my experiences of Ferguson, which means it's like centering whiteness when we're talking mm. about the Ferguson uprising. So like sure. that is inherently problematic and no way to get around it. Um, and so part of my decision in thinking about all of this is because there is sort of like this merit at times of like, kind of like we talked about earlier, meeting people where they are in their transformation process and supporting them by talking about, you know, like I've been here and here's what it was like and here's what's coming um, and here's why it's worth it. And that's a lot about what this book is about. Um, kind of like, generally white person to white person sort of thing. But one way that I've mitigated the space, obviously, that I take up by writing this book is that all of the proceeds will be donated to um, Black liberation organizations, activists, and families who have experienced deaths due to police brutality. So mm. like Dance was donated to organizations founded by each of Michael Brown's parents. Um, oh, wow. I, there's a political prisoner from Ferguson who is incarcerated and like money goes on his books. So, um, 
there's still, you know, the sort of like, it's not as if it doesn't fix the problem, right? Like I want to like sit in the tension of like a white person taking up space in this way. So it's not like, oh, and I sort of, you know, did this mm. thing, now it's fine. I think part of, you know, dismantling white supremacy is sitting in the tension of, huh, white people frequently listen better to white people. And also that's messed up. And also there's black people who know way more about this and who like yeah. aren't getting paid for their labor and just sort of sitting in that and being like, there's no way to get a gold star in anti-racism. Like it's not yeah. that it's not, you're not earning scout badges here. Like it's messy and imperfect. And I'm sure in five years, I'll look back at pieces of the book and be like, wow, I really didn't get that yet. Or like, wow, I needed mm. more reflection here. Mm -hmm. um, but it's sort of my best offering, you know, for this current moment. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's like where you're at now. And it's like the gift that you're giving to those, like you said, who can't hear other voices, who are, who, who are not willing to listen. Right? right. And so that's needed too. And this is the way that you're offering it. And you have a lot of knowledge that so many people, I think, within the church and outside of the church can hear in the yeah. way that you're presenting. And so, you know, it's needed. Yeah. There's a little bit of like introduction to the, to abolition, to the end of prisons and policing. And there's a little bit of like very, very simplified, some community organizing framework 101 type stuff too. And so I think my hope is that what I'm noticing, um, and I'm noticing this because I'm getting like, you know, 12 million messages in my inbox. What I'm noticing is there's all these white people who are, who are activated, who want to do something. And they're literally like, what do we do? Yeah. Um, and that's obviously like, in many ways, that question is like born out of anxiety and sometimes white guilt. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the answer to like, so what do I do is like very personalized city to city, context to context, person to person. But I think there are some sort of like universal truths of like um, touch points to like have in mind and like ways to get involved. And um, I try to do that sort of like narratively as well as in the discussion questions and action items. So I'm hoping it's like useful and not just like navel gazing you know, there's actually really no way for me to know like that. It's a learning tool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm also mostly very terrified. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, as we all are, when we're putting something of ourselves out into the world, you know, yeah. cause it's also it's vulnerable. We have intentions and we want it to be, we want people to see where we're coming from. Right. And sometimes that's not always seen and that's scary and hard. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. And I think what you're doing and how you're showing up in the world is very needed. And I do think it's brave. And I do feel fearless, fearless of you, even though I know you say that you feel anxious too. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, for those of us like me, who takes a long time to get out there, um, it's great. So thank you. And um, how can people find you? Yes. So, um, I have a website, it's eldow.com, E-L-L-E-D-O-W-D.com. On that website, you can sign up for a mailing list. I don't like to spam people. I send very, you know, pretty infrequent updates, but that is going to be the place that people first hear about pre-ordering for the book. And that website in general also has my sermons, other blog posts and writings, ways to get in touch with me. Um, so the website is a good starting point. I also have a public Facebook, I also have a public <laughs> Facebook page, um, facebook.com slash ministry. 
And then you can find me on like Twitter and uh, other platforms at How Now Brown Dowd. My my unmarried name was Brown, so it's like mm-hmm. Brown Dowd. How Now Brown Dowd. Hmm. Um, yeah. But I would say that like the best sort of like the the best place to start and get connected with me is through the website ldowd.com or through the the Facebook page facebook.com slash ministry. And I would love to like hear from anyone, collaborate. If people get on the mailing list, like sometimes like I share some special like links or kind of like fun behind the scenes stories. Or um, recently on my Facebook page, I did like a giveaway of Asata Shakur's autobiography and that was really fun. So I would love to connect with people there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And I wish you all the best with your book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 